Hello and welcome everyone to Trails Worth Hiking, the show that brings you some of the most interesting backpacking and trekking routes in the world. I'm your host, Jeremy Pendry. In the first part of the show, we bring you the story and history of a trail. Then we tell you what it's like to hike the trail and how you can do it. On this episode, we'll spend several days hiking through a beautiful desert. As we hike through desert canyons and view sandstone towers and plateaus, through a forest of pine and juniper. Along the way, we'll enjoy solitude and sleep under a starry desert sky as we cross one of America's finest national parks. On this episode of Trails Worth Hiking, we travel the Zion Traverse, also known as the Trans-Zion Trek, in Zion National Park in southern Utah. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. Before we jump into it, I wanted to remind you to reach out to me at trailsworthhiking at gmail.com if you have ideas for future episodes. Today's guest on the show is listener Allison Richter. She's a native of the Southwest, lives in Tucson, Arizona, and also quite a marathon runner, as you'll hear. Allison's going to tell us about her trip on the Zion Traverse. So why am I interested in doing an episode on a hike in Zion National Park? I've been to Zion twice, once when I was a kid and once with my own daughter when she was very, very young. So both times many, many years ago. I remember when I went there as a kid, the pool at the motel that my brother and sister and I played in, more than I remember anything about Zion National Park. And when we went there with our daughter, more than 20 years ago, we basically just drove through Zion. So I've never really spent time in Zion, or I don't remember it if I did when I was a kid. So though I've been there twice, I haven't really seen it. I've had the same experience in other places in the Southwest, like the Grand Canyon and Arches and Bryce Canyon. Though this year, my wife and I went to the Grand Canyon and spent quite a bit of time, which I'll cover on a future episode. I'd like to do the same with Zion and get a chance to really see it and many other places in the Southwest too. It's such a unique and beautiful environment that we are lucky to have in the United States. So let's talk about the Zion Traverse. In the interview, I think I call it the Trans-Zion Trek or the Trans-Zion Trail, but I decided I like the name Zion Traverse because, I don't know, because it's a traverse. We haven't had a traverse yet, if you look back at the other episodes on the show. So, I don't know, that was attractive. And also, it puts the name Zion first, which is great so that people know what the episode is about. And I just like the sound of it. So, that's what I'm going to be calling it in my intro here, the Zion Traverse. All right. It's hard to talk about the Southwest without talking about the geologic history, which is pretty amazing. And so, let's talk about how Zion is different from the other southwestern locations, in particular in southwestern Utah. So where Zion is, is an intersection of the Colorado Plateau, which is a high red rock kind of desert, uh, the Great Basin, and the Mojave Desert. You may recall we covered the Great Basin in episodes 7 and 20, where we talked about the Ruby Crest Trail and all the mountain ranges there, primarily in Nevada, 
that rise up from these uh, ancient inland seas that are now deserts that don't drain to anywhere. You have salt flats and mountain ranges and in a very dry desert. It's a really interesting and beautiful location. In any event, you can go back and listen to episode 7 and 20 if you want to learn about an amazing hike in the Great Basin. We've also talked about the Mojave Desert, particularly in Joshua Tree National Park back in episode 5. So there's another episode you may want to check out if you want to learn about another desert environment. But here in southwestern Utah, you have this high plateau called the Colorado Plateau meeting the Great Basin and the Mojave Desert. It's also called part of the Grand Staircase. And what this means is you can think of the southwest as a large staircase ascending from the bottom of the Grand Canyon and heading north. And each time you go further north, you are exposing younger and younger layers of rock. So for example, the Grand Canyon goes down to rock that's something like 2 billion years old. But when you get to the top of the Grand Canyon, it's called the Kaibab layer, which is the youngest layer of rock in that area. And that's limestone that's at the rim of the canyon. But when you go a little bit north from Arizona to Utah, the rock that you can find in Zion that is limestone is the oldest rock in Zion, even though it was the youngest rock in the Grand Canyon, if that makes sense. So it's like Zion is one step higher on the staircase, or one step more recent and younger rock is there. And if you go north from Zion to the other southwestern locations, it gets even more recent and younger rock. There are nine different layers of rock in Zion, which represents about a 150 million year span of sedimentary rock. And this is rock that was former seafloor. During the Permian period, this was a relatively flat basin up against the sea. And it was on the western edge of Pangaea, the sort of supercontinent of history that scientists talk about. But then that became the Kaibab Sea. And at that time, Utah was near the equator. That may be a little bit hard to wrap your head around, but as the plates move and continents move, so does which parts of the world are at the equator. And then later there was volcanic activity. And after that, uplift that exposed the sedimentation from those former sea floors or sea adjacent layers of sediment. And then rivers and streams eroded those layers of rock and exposed them and shaped the area. Geologists think the Virgin River in Zion Canyon can keep cutting another 1,000 feet down before it loses the ability to transport sediment to the Colorado River. So Zion Canyon in this region is still very much being formed by the water that's running through it, by the rivers. As the rivers cut through these fairly soft, in geologic terms, layers of sediment. Human history in the area goes back at least 8,000 years. There were originally the Anasazi and the Parawan, as we now call them. We don't know what they called themselves. And these were originally hunter-gatherer societies. But going back about 2,000 years, there's evidence of agriculture, and in particular of growing corn. But these peoples were gone by about 1300 AD, probably, scientists think, due to extended droughts. And they were ultimately replaced by the southern Paiute and Ute peoples. 
The first Europeans to pass through the area were Spanish priests. Trappers and traders followed. But then European settlers arrived in the mid-19th century. And those European settlers, as you might expect in Utah, were the Mormons. The Kolob Canyon portion of Zion was used for grazing and timber by Mormon settlers. In fact, the name Kolob came from Mormon scripture that was a name for a heavenly place close to God. And so the first settlers were in about 1847. In 1858, Nephi Johnson had a Paiute guide lead him into the Upper Virgin River in Zion Canyon and basically reported back to other Mormon settlers that this was a good place for farming. In the 1860s, the town of Springdale was founded, which is up against the park. And in 1863, Isaac Bahunin settled in Zion Canyon itself. And Bahunin gave it the name Zion after the biblical place. Grand Canyon explorer John Wesley Powell also gave Zion Canyon a name, but he gave it a different name. He gave it the name Mukuntuiyap, which is a Paiute word for straight canyon. We'll come back to that in a moment. As far as thinking about how Zion became a protected place, in the 1904 St. Louis World's Fair, there were exhibits with paintings about Zion that got the attention of politicians. And then in 1909, President Taft created the Mukuntuiyap National Monument, so going with the name that Powell gave the area. But in 1918, the name was changed to Zion by the National Park Service in anticipation of 1919 when Zion became a national park. And then finally, in 1956, the Kolob section, which is part of the park today, was added to the park. It was not originally part of the park. It was originally its own national monument. In thinking about the Southwest, there seems to have always been a religious kind of connection to this kind of landscape, maybe because the Southwest may remind us of what the Middle East looks like. And so these canyons and plateaus may seem more biblical or have more significance, or maybe it's just the open space of desert, who knows. But the Mormons certainly identified the area with religious significance, as the names imply that they gave to these locations. And there is certainly evidence that the Native Americans before them did the same, and others have since. I recently visited the Grand Canyon and saw everything from Orthodox Jews to Quakers wanting to experience God's creation there in Arizona. So I think these places today are still pilgrimages for people who have strong religious faith as a way to see what is possible. It's almost cliche, in fact, to talk about New Age spirituality in the Southwest. Places like Sedona, Arizona come to mind. At times, though, this connection to the spiritual or the New Age kind of ethic or to religion can attract people who are less than perfectly stable and can attract seekers who may not realize the harsh environment they're putting themselves in. One such person recently is Holly Courtier. In October 2020, Holly Courtier of California went to Zion as part of a spiritual pilgrimage. At the time, she was a 38-year-old who had been working as a nanny but lost her job due to the pandemic and was traveling the country living out of a van. 
When she left California, she left her phone behind and didn't tell anyone where she was going. Her friends say that she was going through a mental breakdown. She arrived in Zion on October 6th, parked her car in Springdale, and took a shuttle into the grotto area of the park, and then disappeared. She went missing for 12 days before she was found. She had very little with her, just a sweatshirt, a blanket, and a hammock, small day pack, a few other items. And she had started fasting before, apparently, something that she had done in the past, and had planned to connect with nature and read her Bible. Pretty much everything that happened after that and until she was found, though, is unclear or disputed. Apparently, she hit her head when trying to set up her hammock and possibly got a concussion and got disoriented. One thing that's not known is how she got enough water to survive, because although the Virgin River ran through the area, at the time it had a toxic bacteria in it that would have killed her if she had drank from it daily. In any event, while she was missing, her family started a GoFundMe that raised over $12,000. And one sheriff from the area speculated that the whole thing was a hoax to raise money, but no other evidence seems to support this theory. Ultimately, she was found pretty close to where she went missing and not far into the backcountry. There's disputes about whether she had injuries or to what extent she was dehydrated or had a concussion. It's not clear. And also how much medical care she needed. Nobody really knows. And I won't claim to know what happened, and this is not a true crime podcast, so I'm not going to try to figure out both sides of it. And to some extent, it doesn't really matter. What's interesting to me is that the area seems to attract this kind of person, a spiritual seeker that is less than perfectly stable or maybe going through some difficult times in their lives. And it seems to attract them to want to have this kind of interaction with this kind of a natural place, with this vast expanse, this desert, these plateaus, these mesas, these mountains, and everything else that the Southwest has. So the Holly Courtier story has a happy ending in the sense that she was found and she survived her ordeal, whatever that ordeal was. But I think what is more interesting for our purposes is that there is a safe and wonderful way to experience the spiritual grandeur of this place, if you want to call it that, which is the Zion Traverse. So with that introduction, let's jump into my conversation with Allison Richter about her hike along the Zion Traverse. Allison Richter, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I love talking about hiking. <laughs> me too. Yeah. So you've you've been a backpacker now only for a few years though, right? Right. I think we did our first trip in 2018. How did that come about that you decided to go from day hikes to doing something overnight? Um, that's a great question. We um, wanted to hike to Havasupai Falls at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. And you don't get there by hiking down from the visitor center. It's like a really off the beaten path um, hike. Very hard to get reservations. And 
we realized, well, if we if we want to go there, we have to backpack. We can't just day hike in, drive in, drive out. This is an event. So we were able to snag a spot the day the reservations opened up and we decided, okay, this is it. We're going to backpack for the first time because this hike was so hard to do and, and so difficult to get reservations for that that was the driving force behind backpacking. But once you did have a Supai Falls, now you've done some other hikes. So you must have gotten hooked. Yes. Very quickly. We loved it. We had a great time. That whole idea that you were completely self-sufficient and being able to pick up and move spots and do it was just great. And so we were really intrigued to go to other hikes at that point. And so you are not just a backpacker, though. You are also a pretty serious runner. And I think you told me that you've run a marathon in every state. How did that happen? (laughs) That's correct. I started running in... 2004. Yeah, my son was two and I needed to find a way to get my my youngest of two children was two years old and I needed to find a way to get back in shape and find a hobby that I enjoyed. And so running became a pretty efficient, easy way to get out and burn some calories and run some miles. And I got hooked on that. And so I ran my first marathon in 2006 and didn't look back. And I heard about the 50 State Club and I decided that could be like a life goal. And I decided I wanted to do that by the time I was 50. I think at the time I was 36 and I just completed that goal this last summer in the summer of 2021 in Alaska. And so I have now run a marathon in all 50 states. Congratulations. Thank you. One thing that we have in common that I think you mentioned is that you have recently become an empty nester, you and your husband. My wife and I have as well. What do you think about life as an empty nester, particularly as it relates to being able to go hiking and backpacking? (laughs) Oh, I love it. I mean, I love my children. I absolutely love having them both home. Going to visit them is great. But I am thoroughly enjoying an empty nest. We can be pretty spontaneous about going for a camping trip or a backpacking trip or whatever, a long day hike. And there's no other logistics to deal with, just our own. So it's it's really nice. Yeah, I agree with all of that. Yeah. <laughs> Today, we're going to be talking about the Trans-Zion Trek. How did it come about that you ended up doing that hike? I think this was our second hike after Havasupai Falls. And we decided, okay, we want to see other places. And we live in Tucson, Arizona. And so the Southwest is super accessible to us. There's a lot to see within a day's drive from here. We can be in Southern Utah within a day. Northern Arizona has a ton of stuff to do. There's a lot to do in Nevada also. And we just started looking at what are, I mean, we're always dealing with time and money, right? So what is our time frame? And how much does it cost? So we were able to schedule this trip during my fall break. I was teaching at the time. And we just kind of looked at where can we go for a four-day, three-night backpacking trip. And we do a lot of searching online, like I think many people do when they're coming up with new ideas. And we found Trans-Zion Trek. And it looked interesting. The timing was right. It was a good time of year to go and be there. And so we start working on the details and... It's a trip that requires a lot of planning. I can talk more about that in a minute, but that was how we got there. That was how we decided on that trip. How far of a drive is that from Tucson? It's about eight or nine hours. So it's a full day. Yeah. And so you were mentioning planning. What was the difficulty in planning for this trip? Was it the permitting or is that the main thing? 
The permitting actually wasn't that bad. Um, I know permitting has changed a lot in the last year because of so many people going to the national park. Like, for example, now to hike Angel's Landing, you need a permit. So the permitting wasn't bad. We knew to go in the day before and get the permit. We were assured that it wasn't a problem. Okay. So what was the difficulty with planning? The difficulty really was the transportation, the logistics of getting from point A to point B, of only having one car, of the cost. It was an expensive shuttle ride, as I recall. So what we ended up doing was parking at the visitor center in Zion National Park and getting a shuttle from there to Kolob Canyon. And then we started our hike back to the visitor center. Okay, so the difficulty is really that it was a point-to-point hike and you've got to leave a car at one end and not at the other end. And you did the probably yeah. what I think is the best thing to do, which is to leave your car at the completion of the trek so that when you're done with the hike, you have your car there waiting for you. Yeah, and then you are self-sufficient again. <laughs> exactly. And you hike this trail with your husband, right? Right. How does he do on these hikes? Is he, you know, I mean, you're pretty darn fit if you're doing marathons all the time. Is he yeah. pretty capable? Yeah, he's a great hiker. He, um, he's a, I always say he's a very dedicated treadmill walker. He will walk five, six <laughs> miles a day. <laughs> yeah. This time of year when it's nice out, he's walking outdoors. But in the summer, he's really committed to getting his miles in on the treadmill. So we're very compatible hikers. The fitness isn't really an issue. We can take on a short day or a long day. We're very good hikers together. What time of year did you hike this trail? We hiked in early October. I think it was maybe like the third or fourth to the 10th. It was in that week. It was during my fall break from school, which is always in the first week or two of October. Is that the best time of year to hike this trail? Are there other good times of year to hike this trail? Weather can always be a huge factor. It's the biggest thing that you can't predict and has the largest effect on everything you do. But we hit it pretty well. It was warm. We had some warm days. The nights were cool and it was dry. We didn't have any rain. Although the day after we got off the trail, there was quite a bit of weather. It was very cold. Um, They may have gotten a little snow even, but it was pretty warm when we were there. So you can get these cold snaps in the fall. I wouldn't want to do this hike in the winter because of snow. And I'm not, I'm from the desert, so I'm not equipped to hike in the snow. I think doing it in the fall or the spring would be ideal. Okay. And the summer, you have not just uh, heat, but there are also these monsoon rains that happen from time to time, right? It could be flooding. Yeah, there can be flooding. And when the monsoons come through, they are a force to reckon with. You don't want to be out in a monsoon. Um, yeah, so I wouldn't do this hike in the summer because of heat and the risk of monsoons. And, and the monsoons are really later in the summer, like late July through August. Okay. And even when you're in a good time of year, as far as weather, because you're in the desert, there's a lot of exposure that you have to think about as well, right? Like really covering yourself so that you're not getting too much sun even in October. Oh, yeah. The exposure is a big deal. Coming from Southern Arizona, we are very programmed to always have more water than you think you need, because if you were to get lost or stranded, you need that water. Um, We're very conditioned to protect ourselves from the sun. So whether that means wearing layers to cover up or sunscreen, or I definitely always wear a hat when I hike, we are very, very concerned about water. And we always want to have more water than we need. So that was a bit of a challenge on this hike, because it was dry when we went, and there wasn't There wasn't a lot. What did you do to make sure that you had enough? Did you cash? 
We did. I had read a tip online. I think even like it was a few days before we left on the trip because I was starting to feel nervous about it. I did some searching and somebody had recommended caching water at one of the trailheads where the road did meet up with the trail. And I thought, okay, I'm going to do that because what's the worst case? We don't need it. And best case, we need it and we have it. So we did take two gallons of water with us. And we had a day on the front end of the trip because we we knew we needed to go to the visitor center. So we had that day and we drove out to the trailhead that we will, would be meeting up with on the second day of our hike. And we cached the two gallons of water there. And there were lots of gallons of water out there with people's names on them. So that was not a hard thing to do. And I'm really glad we did it because we absolutely needed it. How long of a hike is this hike? It is about 49 miles. Okay. So we did it over four days, three nights. Uh, We had one really long day, which was the day we got the water. And the rest of the days were pretty manageable, but there was a 15-mile day in there. And the elevation, I guess the way I think about it is this part of Utah, you are kind of up on a plateau in the sense that you're at elevation. But other than that, you're not really going huge ups and downs, are you? No, I don't remember huge ups and downs. My husband remembers feeling like there was a portion that was just a steady uphill and he felt like, when are we going to be done climbing? But I don't remember it being a lot of elevation at all. Okay. From what I found online, it looks like it's about 6,000 feet of gain and loss. Um, Mm -hmm. So it seems like you finish at about the same elevation where you start. Yeah. I mean, there are definitely some parts where you go up, we're on a rim for quite a while. And so we got there somehow. But in my memory, I don't remember it being a hilly uphill battle at all, or a steep downhill. It was fairly even going. Okay. And so other than caching water and having to be careful about where you get water, Mm -hmm. what's the food situation as far as um, do you have to be protecting your food against animals at night or anything like that? No, so that's not a big concern there. Um, I'm more concerned about ground squirrels and rodents getting into my stuff than anything else. But we always bring some rope and we have little dry bags or or small, I don't even know what they're called, small bags that you can roll up the top and clip them together. And we always hang that anyways. And that has prevented us from rodent problems. But no, the, the wildlife out there... Uh, You see some little paw prints along the way. So there's definitely some coyotes out there, but we did hang it, but I don't remember it being like a big deal. Okay. And what about navigation? Did you have, what's, is there a standard map that works for this or just the park map? The National Geographic map is the best. That's a great map. Everything's really well labeled. And we only used the map. I think we had um, some kind of a Garmin something or other for navigating, but we really didn't need it. It's a well-marked trail. There's, you're not going to get lost out there. Okay. And if someone were to come from outside of the Southwest, how would you get there? What's the nearest big city and nearest airport? The nearest is probably Las Vegas. And then you could rent a car from Vegas. There are some regional airports, like there's one in St. George, Utah, and one in Cedar City. Oftentimes flying into a regional airport is pretty expensive. So the Biggest, closest would be Las Vegas. And I'm going to venture that's probably a three-hour drive. Okay. And you said that the shuttle was expensive to get from one end of the trailhead to the other. What did that end up costing you roughly? I remember it being like maybe $200 each. It was expensive. 
Yeah. I mean, maybe it was 200 total, but I remember that number sticking out as like, (laughs) this is an expensive ride. And I'm glad we only had to do the one way because we had our car at the end. Yeah. I mean, they sort of have you, right? Like you're out there. There's really not much out there. It's the only way you're going to get to the other trailhead. Exactly. So there are some, you know, there are some private shuttles. There's some group shuttles. We ended up doing a private one because the group ones didn't work with our dates. And then you're kind of beholden to their time schedules and all that. So it just, it took time. And so you hiked this trail, which direction? We hiked from west to east. Okay. And so which trailhead are you starting at then when you do it that way? We started at Lee Pass. Okay. And that's on the Kolob Canyon side? Yes. Yes. And then we ended at Angel Angel's Landing within Zion. And do you think that's a a good way to do the trek because you end up um, finishing the hike up at the visitor center where there's more resources or is it just because it was what you decided would make sense for you guys? I mean, I think it was really driven by transportation. It really made sense to go from west, uh, yeah, west to east. I didn't read a lot of people doing it the other way and I didn't see anybody on the trail doing it the other way. I think that's the pretty standard way to go. Okay. And what about the night before? Did you camp in Zion or stay at a hotel in the area? Or what was the situation? You definitely could camp the night before at Kolob Canyon or or at Zion, whatever. We stayed in a hotel and then we drove over to the visitor center and then our shuttle driver picked us up and took us out to Kolob Canyon. But we did stay in a hotel. It feels like that's an easier way to manage all your gear and make sure everything's squared away. And so that worked best for us. And then at the end of the hike, also, we stayed at a hotel. And you mentioned that permits were actually easy to get the day before. When I looked online, it looked like people can reserve them up to up to several months. I think it was three months in advance. Do you recommend people just sort of show up and get in the day before? It seems like that's not too hard. Or, or is it better, do you think, to try to reserve in advance? I always think it's better to reserve in advance. But in our situation, it was not a problem to get the permit the day before. All right. And how about where you camp along the route? Do you have to Mm -hmm. reserve particular campsites or is it camp wherever you want? Or how does that work? I don't think it was sites. I think when you go and get your permit, you sort of walk through your plan with them. Like I plan on camping in this area. I plan on camping here. And they give you some recommendations. But once you get there... At least at the time in 2019, it was not a problem to camp kind of where you wanted within the spaces available. They may have changed that system now where you are, you know, you're staying at campsite five. I I don't know, but we just kind of picked a spot along the way. And there was one day where there weren't designated campsites. You just found a spot to stay. And what's the water source when you're in campsites? Are there actual faucets or is there a creek or how did you get water? Yeah, it's Creek. So one day we were hiking through and there was marked on the map that Wildcat Spring is here. So we came up to what we, we came up to something. It was like a little pipe in the wall that came out and a drip of water coming out of this rock wall. Well, apparently at the top of that, there was a spring and they had established this pipe to sort of bring the water down to the trailhead. Well, I had no clue that this was a water source. To me, it looked like a drip, like an accident. Like I was like, that can't be the spring. That's ridiculous. That was it. (laughs) So we walked past it. 
You're someone from the desert. You should know better. (laughs) (laughs) I thought if there was water, there was water. There was no doubt it was water. This was literally a dripping pipe in a rock wall. I had no idea it was it was the water source. Well, that could be also because it was October. Maybe it runs a little bit more full earlier in this in the year. I believe it does. We had talked at the visitor center about what are the water sources. And they said, you know, this one's pretty good. This one's pretty good. This one's hit and miss. This one's dry. You know, so they had some some guidance for us. But like I said, I'm really glad we cached water. (laughs) So for people who haven't been to the southwest to southern Utah, Mm-hmm. Zion is a pretty special place. Tell people what it looks like there. What does this area look like when you're when you're hiking? What are the the features? Yeah, it's beautiful. It is really beautiful. You'll see lots of red rock. There's multicolors in there too. It's not just all red rock. Like Bryce Canyon is a lot of red rock and the hoodoos, and it's just otherworldly. If you've never been to Bryce Canyon, go to Bryce Canyon. But Zion, its nearby neighbor, is very different than than that. It has red rock. It has a lot of green. There's a lot of trees. We were there in October, so we saw trees changing color. There are parts where you're walking on a dirt path, and there are parts where you're walking on rock. It's just a beautiful, very, very iconic southwest red rock situation. It's gorgeous. There's lots of sheer rock walls that you see out in the distance or alongside of you, and it's incredibly gorgeous part of the country. That's my memory of Zion is just there being lots of really impressive rock formations where it doesn't look like you have to go over them, but they're just everywhere around you. So you have this sort of hilly, sheer rock, like you mentioned, feel, even though you're out in the middle of the desert. Yes, very much so. All right. So let's talk a little bit about what the itinerary would be for the trip that you guys did, just so people have an idea of what an itinerary might look like. So you started at at the Lee Pass trailhead, and then what was the first day? The first day was pretty mild. It was like seven miles of hiking. And we got down to, um, we hiked from Lee Pass down to, I have have a map here, so I'm just going to look. Okay, so we hiked from Lee Pass down to Laverkin Creek Trail and got out to the campsites there. And there's a quick little mile hike you can do out to Kolob Arch. And that was really a very easy, beautiful day. We hiked or we camped along a stream. And so there was just all the water you could ask for. And really very easy, beautiful first day. You felt like you were getting into the middle of nowhere, which was great. The little hike out to the arch was very pretty and fun. And, you know, we got an early start just because the shuttle had to pick up at a certain time. And so we were kind of done hiking for the day by one o'clock and we're used to being on the go the whole day. And so we were done at one o'clock and we didn't really know what to do (laughs) with ourselves at that point. That's not a bad problem to have. No, we figured that out pretty fast. It was nice to just be able to relax. And I think we hiked around and read a book and hung out and it was really nice. And so day two was your big day. Tell me about that. Yeah, that was a long day. We knew it was a long day. It was going to be a little grueling, pretty hot. <clears throat> so we got an early start out of there, out of Laverkin Creek, and we took the Hop Valley Trail. And Hop Valley Trail is really interesting because part of it goes through private land, and they have a lot of cows living on that land. So you see a lot of evidence of cows <laughs> living on that land that you're careful to step over. But you go through a gate, a, a private 
farm gate and close it behind you. And there's some water running through there, although it was fairly dry when we went through. Um, some people will, I saw on, on reviews of the trail that they had to walk through the water, which left them with wet shoes, but we didn't have that problem at all when we were there. And it's a long, flat, hot, over, you know, no, no coverage. You're totally exposed through Hop Valley. Very beautiful. We did see the cows along the way too. And then you get to Wildcat Canyon Trail. And that trail I remember being a little more uphill. But right where Hop Valley meets up with Wildcat Canyon, that's where we had cached water at the trailhead there. And so because we're from the Southwest, we are taught to drink early and often. And so we drink water like we have an unlimited supply. <laughs> so by the time we got there, we had gone through quite a bit of water. So if we hadn't left water there, it would have been a big problem. That's an interesting point you raise about drinking water early and often, because I think it's a point that not everyone understands. And I've, I was told this too, and I do the same thing, which is if you have food, it makes sense to ration it throughout the day and in equal intervals. But water, they say not to do that. They say to drink it when you're thirsty, even if you're going to run out, you should keep yeah. drinking it because you don't, it's too hard to catch up once you're dehydrated. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you're right. Food, you can ration out. You can go without the food. You can't go without the water. Um, so we drank early and often and went through quite a bit of water. And I think it was around noon that we got to the trailhead where we had cached the water. And, and I was just so thankful that we had that water. And we had gone all the way through Hop Valley where there's, you know, there's a little water flowing through there, but there's a lot of cow manure in that water. I'm not keen on that at all. It didn't look <laughs> like water I wanted to even filter and drink. So then after we got to... Wildcat Canyon Trail and sort of you change course, you're sort of heading south the whole day. And now you're heading west and a little north, uh, or sorry, east, you're heading east and north. And that trail was really beautiful. It was a great day of hiking, you get into the trees, there's a lot of colorful leaves for us in October. And that was the day that you're just supposed to kind of find a camping site. And I felt like on one side of us was a rock wall of a mountain. And on the other side was maybe a few trees heading downhill. I didn't see anywhere to hike. And so it really took us the entire length of Wildcat Canyon Trail until we found a place to hike or to camp for the night. And I was just not sure where this site was going to come from. But then all of a sudden, there's a little flat space of land and we were able to put up our tent. And it was actually quite a beautiful site. It's great when you find a site like that, too, because typically there's nobody else around because it's not an established site. So you kind of get it to yourself. Yeah, we hadn't seen anybody that whole day. There were some people camping the night before where we were, but we hadn't seen anybody at all that whole day. And we had the whole camp area to ourselves. One of the things you mentioned is the different trail names. And so I just want to be clear for listeners to know that we're calling this the Trans-Zion Trail, but there's... To make this trail work, it's a connection of a lot of different existing trails. Isn't that right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, and so you can figure it out in the planning stages as to which trails you need to take once you hit them, but it, just so people know that. Yeah, and it's pretty clear. There's not a lot of choices. This is the trail. You're not going to pick the wrong one and go the wrong direction. It's, it's very obvious. Oh, you don't know me. 
<laughs> I, I am the exact same way. When we get to the parking lot of the hike and it says trailhead this way, I still can't find it half the time. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So day three is a little bit more reasonable day, but still a pretty good day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that was a really beautiful day. We got out of Wildcat Canyon onto uh, West Rim Trail. And along that rim trail, there's it's just gorgeous. You're getting one beautiful, expansive view after another. By about lunchtime that day, we hit an area called Potato Hollow. And it was just green, so bright and green, such a contrast from the day before where it was pretty flat and dry. We got to this beautiful green area with this lovely, obvious spring flowing through <laughs> where we refilled everything. Had a lovely break there, enjoyed lunch, sat in the shade of some trees, and just really enjoyed that kind of peace of being there. We did start to see other people around then. I'm not really sure if they were coming from the other direction or a different trailhead, but we did run into people that day. There are a couple of places along this hike where you can join the trail. You don't have to start at Lee Pass. You can drive out and start at other areas. And then we hiked up onto the top of the rim, and it's just incredibly beautiful up there. That night we saw so many stars. Um, the campsites are really spread out from each other. So even though there were other people out there, we didn't really see them um, much at all. And then the last day you had a pretty easy day to finish up, right? Yeah, very easy. That's the day where you land in the park. The way the hike drops us out, you're, you are at Angel's Landing, which is a big popular hike out there. It's a very scary looking hike to me. I'm not, I'm not a thrill seeker. I will work very hard. I will do the long miles. I will do all that, but I, I don't want to feel scared. That's not fun for me. My husband was happy to go and hike Angel's Landing. He said some of the hikers out there are really pretty irresponsible about passing each other and being safe and all that. But yeah, that doesn't look like a good time <laughs> for me. What is Angel's Landing and what makes it scary? So it's a very narrow strip of rock that people will hike up and kind of onto the top of and then back down. It takes about an hour from the top. You have to hike up. If you're coming up from the park, it's mm -hmm. a it's a hike up there. You hike up these wiggles. Oh, I forget what it's called. Wiggles walk or something. And it is just a ton of switchbacks all the way up to the base of Angel's Landing. And then... From there, it's about an hour to hike up to the top and back down. But there are rails along the way, you know, like chain link handles that you hold on to, chain, chain links. And just to be safe and get up there, it, yeah, I took one look at it and said, no, thanks. And my husband said at the end, no, you wouldn't have enjoyed that. <laughs> <laughs> it's just too narrow. Yeah. Yeah. Especially with all the people, right? That always makes it worse because yeah. the people, like you said, they're not always paying attention and they can make it more dangerous than it needs to be. Yeah, definitely. And so it sounds like you had that the arch on the first day is a nice little side trip. And then potentially this angel's landing as you're about to finish up the hike. Were there any other mm -hmm. side trips in the middle that you think people should think about doing? When we got up onto the rim, there is, it's a 2.4 mile loop up there. And we did hike all the way around the top of the rim. Um, so you got all the views you could have up there, which was really nice. So again, I think that day was only eight miles of hiking, eight or nine. And so we did add on the extra 2.4 miles just to walk all the way around the rim. I thought that was really beautiful. 
Okay, so that was day three, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. And then, yeah. And then once you get back down into the park and you hike all the way down to the road, then there's the shuttle buses and the, you know, the all the hikes you can do down in Zion, too. At that point, we had our backpacks. We were ready to get a shower and clean up. And so we didn't, and, and it felt a little overwhelming to have all those people around again. Like we had been on our own for four days and now it's people everywhere. So it felt a little overwhelming to get into the park actually. But I think if I could do it over, I would add another day or two on at the end to just explore the park for all that the park is known for. I feel like I didn't really see Zion. I saw a ton of backcountry, which was possibly even more beautiful than what Zion has to offer, but different. So you didn't see the the sort of name brand trails that everyone talks about, but you, you sell the backcountry. Right. Like we didn't go up to the Narrows and we didn't do the Temple of Sinawava, I think it's called. We didn't do any of the big iconic hikes there. But yeah, we saw all the backcountry. I don't know. I think I, I hear what you're saying. And it's hard to yeah. do it. I almost feel like if you're going to do those things, you should do them before the hike maybe a couple of days before yeah, maybe. because coming like when you come back out at the end, you're just done. And you're you, like you said, you need a shower. And you also, like you said, it being around a ton of people is hard. Um, you've just it come is. out of this sort of really kind of meditative space over several days and now you're being bombarded by tourists. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it's good to have a couple of extra days to see those kind of things, but I would probably do it on the front end. Yeah, I think you're right. That's a really good perspective. The front end would be better. So when you think back on this hike in general, why is this a trail that people should think about doing? I think the beauty of the area, the peace and quiet out there, just trekking along on your own, it really just lets you unplug and unwind and relax and appreciate. I felt very appreciative of being able to be out there. Anytime I find myself in a place that you can't drive to, that's hard to get to, that required some work, is always worth it, always. And I just love being in that place of quiet and um, beauty. So I think that's definitely a reason to do this hike. Is there a moment that stands out for you that when you think back on the trip? There was this beautiful moment up on the rim on the third night where it was just unbelievably quiet and beautiful and the sun was setting and everything just felt like a postcard in front of me or like a movie set or something. Just these beautiful mountains and trees and just the peace of it all was just so beautiful. I feel like, oh, I wish I could just capture this. I tried to take pictures of it and I was looking back at my pictures and it just didn't do it justice. It was so much more beautiful than the pictures are. Yeah, they never do. Mm -mm. Well, Allison, thank you for telling us about your hike on the Trans-Zion Trail. But while mm -hmm. I have you, I've got a few more questions. Sure. Okay. What is one piece of gear you don't leave home without? Okay. So everybody says their water filter and all those safety pieces. So I'm going <laughs> yeah. to assume you have all that. <laughs> so <laughs> everybody should have all those things. I learned about uh, Kula cloth, which is essentially a pea cloth. It's for women only. And instead of carrying toilet paper and a Ziploc, I have a Kula cloth and I will not hike without it. It is so convenient and you can wash it out every night. And it's, that's my absolute favorite piece of camping gear besides all the safety pieces. 
Okay, so that is definitely a piece of gear that I didn't know about. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that sounds like good adv- <laughs> that sounds like good advice for women who uh, want to have something for their hygiene set up. Yep, absolutely. Okay, and what about a backpacking meal you could eat every day? Okay, so I make all my own backpacking food. I dehydrate chicken and vegetables and fruit, and I I found that those package meals, while they're good, they may not always be filling enough for a long day of backpacking. And they're expensive. They're really expensive. They can be $10, $12, $14 a piece, and you need two of them. And that becomes like a very expensive trip. Um, So I started making all my own food. But one of my favorite meals is called Thanksgiving in a bag. And I get like a box of stuffing, like you would buy at Thanksgiving, and a package of potatoes, or I will actually just make my own potatoes and dry Mm -hmm. them. And you put that in a bag with a little bit of a little handful of cranberries and a handful of either dried turkey or turkey jerky. And when you rehydrate that, mm, that is some good stuff. (laughs) All it takes is one long day of hiking and you imagine Thanksgiving dinner right before you. That's right. That's fantastic. (laughs) I would never eat that at home. Never. But out on the trail, (laughs) sounds great. All right. What is the next trip on your list? We are going to be hiking the Tour de Mont Blanc in Europe, which I um, heard a whole podcast on from you and gave me so much information. And so we are excited to do that uh, late June, early July. I'm excited for you to do that. It's a really fun trip. It's not a backpacking trip, remember? It no. is no. It is going from hostel or, or refuge to refuge and town to town, yeah. but still a yeah. wonderful experience. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. All right. So last question. One thing you mentioned is that, or you mentioned to me offline, is that you have done some canoe packing or canoe hiking type trips. Talk a little bit about what that's like and, and why that's something people should be thinking about. Okay. So the canoeing part just adds a whole nother element. And it's really fun. You can bring a lot more stuff. I think that's one of the things I like about it is if you think you might need it, go ahead and bring it. You're not carrying it on your back. You're throwing it in the canoe. So we did this fantastic uh, 10, nine day trip, nine or 10 day trip on the Missouri River in Montana. And it's part of the Lewis and Clark Trail that they explored. And just to see the landscape from the point of view of the water is just very different. And then there's all kinds of hiking you can do to the off on the land. So every day when we would get our miles in and find a place to camp for the night, there was something new to explore. And so we did about 150 miles on that river. We got to hike up to the point where Lewis and Clark first perceived the Rocky Mountains, which was really exciting. There's some old homesteads along the water that have been abandoned and used to be, I'm sure, quite lively. And you can see the old farmhouses and living quarters. It's a gorgeous area, lots of beautiful hikes along there. And so to have that piece of adding in the canoeing, it's just another experience that's a lot of fun. That sounds like a great option for people to consider. It's it's something I've wanted to do at either a rafting camping trip or a canoeing camping trip, but just Mm -hmm. haven't gotten to. So you make me want to think about doing it again or make me think about how I could plan a trip. So that's good to hear. It's a a really good time. It can be very relaxing out on the water. And then you add in, you still have all the work of camping 
and you can add in all the hiking you want. But it's a really neat way to be out there. Allison Richter, thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. So I hope Allison and I have inspired you to hike the Zion Traverse. And if you've enjoyed this episode, tell a friend about it. Or better yet, give us a good review on whichever podcast service you use. And keep in mind that this podcast is entertainment and meant to spark your interest. If you decide to hike the trail, do your own research. Like anything else worth doing, outdoor adventure has risk. So when you go, pack your common sense. And when you get back, tell me how it went. As always, before we go, I want to remind you that Trails Worth Hiking listeners have the opportunity to get 10% off their order on Outdoor Herbivore backpacking meals at OutdoorHerbivore.com. The discount code is TWH10P. That's Trails Worth Hiking, 10%, TWH10P. As you know, they don't provide me anything, at least not yet. Maybe someday they will uh, for mentioning this, but because they provide a discount to listeners, I thought I would do so. I am a fan of their products. On my recent backpacking trip with my wife in the Grand Canyon, which will be the subject of a future episode, uh, we ate outdoor or before dinners and really enjoyed them. I think we had the lemongrass Thai curry, the blackened quinoa, and the third one had lentils. I can't remember the name of the meal, but it had lentils. In any event, we had three outdoor herbivore meals for dinners during our trip and really enjoyed them all. They are vegan and vegetarian backpacking meals, though, as I always say, you don't need to be a vegan or a vegetarian to enjoy them. They have plenty of calories for a hungry hiker and are packaged in convenient and small packaging. Convenient in the sense that it's boil in a bag packaging, so you can just pour hot water into it, stir, and your meal's ready in 10 minutes. And small, which is helpful so that they can be packed easily in a backpack. So there you go. Check out Outdoor Herbivore at OutdoorHerbivore.com. All right, now let's talk about our next episode. I'm really excited about this next one. Next time on Trails Worth Hiking, we travel a week-long route through forest and bogs by rivers and a beautiful lake as we climb higher and higher, staying in rustic mountain huts, finally even crossing two glaciers, even though we're almost at the equator, before reaching a summit that is higher than 5,100 meters up, almost 17,000 feet, atop Margarita Peak, one of the highest peaks in Africa. Yes, next time we are finally going trekking in Africa. Next time on Trails Worth Hiking, we hike the Renzori Central Circuit in the Renzori Mountains of Uganda. If you have any questions or feedback on this episode or ideas for future episodes, including if you'd like to be a guest and talk about a trail that you've hiked, don't hesitate to reach out to me at trailsworthhiking at gmail.com. So start planning your next hike. And before you know it, you'll be on the trail. Thanks for listening.